This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Yo, what's up, everybody? Shitty as Raj podcast live from East. Coming at you live from East Hollywood. What's East, up? East, what's up? Uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Um, you know, there's, I think by the time this episode's out, we're going to have a lot of things, a lot of cool things coming out. Um, thank you, everybody, for tuning in for, like, the past, like, year. Year and change. Like, it's it's been a hectic ride. We've had the craziest people we've had. Like, I don't know. It's, it's been such a crazy ride this these past, like, year and a half. And uh, I really want to thank everybody for listening. Um, you know, there's been a lot of low points. There's been a lot of changes. There's been a lot of, you know, not the best quality episodes. But I, I, I think uh, it's every a project, bro, it happens. I, yeah, I thank everybody for listening because at the end of the day, we do get messages from like Puerto Rico, Colombia, like a lot of Hispanic people, a lot of like a lot of immigrants. Uh, you know, hit us up and they're like, you know, thank you for ma- making a, a, an episode fully in Spanish. And you know, I think that's the reason I'm still doing this at the end of the day. Um, but yeah, today my guest is someone who I personally look up to a lot and uh, admire, and we have Bobby Hundreds. How you doing, sir? All right, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to start off, you know, just right off the bat. This is a hardcore podcast, and right now oh, my yeah. my life is, you know, uh, it's it surrounds around hardcore. Everything, my weekends, my jobs. You know, if I quit a job, is all because I want to. I can. I got to make it to the show, or I got to go on tour with my friends. Damn, so, I love that. I got goosebumps. That's kind of all that's we do sick. at this point, honestly. Yeah, like honestly, uh, I, that's why I was like, I was thinking all day. I was like, well, how should I start it off? What should I ask? And I was like, honestly, like, we're gonna start it off right off the bat, hardcore. Uh, how was your time in hardcore? Uh, you know, how what how did that affect you know now? Like, what what ethos, what uh, morals did you take from that? think it's everything and i think uh, if you look at the the breadth of my life you can see where hardcore is annotated through all of my memories all of my work aspirations all of my relationships have all stemmed i think from the yeah i think you said it the the moral compass right the moral center of my life really emanates i think as a flywheel from the spokes of, of hardcore and um as you were talking about your relationship with the scene and the culture and you you speak with such zeal and passion about it yeah it gave me goosebumps because i was a product of the very early 90s you could even say product of new york hardcore 80s scene but like i grew up in southern california so i was in the mid 90s early 90s and i at the time i thought that the the culture as much as i believed in i was like this is an ephemeral moment like this is lightning in a bottle a window in time it obviously can't stay like this forever because it's so romantic and it's so zealous and ideological and these kids are all we're all coming together from around the world but it can't stay like this forever because it's a subculture by nature most subcultures as they get popular they get commercialized you know they go mainstream they hit the radio and I was just like, 
it's not going to be like this forever. I really have to hold on and, and appreciate it. And so the fact, whenever I meet kids like you and the, young, the younger, the next generation, there's always another new generations coming with a new set of bands, just like a new set of style, new set of new set of dancing. And they speak about hardcore in the same way where I'm like, yo, that's how I felt when I was 12 years old, 13 years old, for like, it's the same. It never left. I'm like, holy shit, this is going to last 100 years. <laughs> like, mm. This is always going to be a thing. And um, nobody, I think, has properly marked, like, packaged it up in, like, commercial marketing and, like, merchandised it and, like, sold it as a thing. You know, it's never been completely inundated, like, overtaken by corporate vultures. You know, I'm sure many have tried. Um, but it seems to somehow always elude or evade this type of, like, mass consumption, mass adoption. And you can't say that for most things anymore, especially, like, subcultures and subgenres. Streetwear, to me, was this real romantic spirit that channeled a lot of the hardcore ethos and, and the DIY spirit to me. But even streetwear, over time, has been, like, pilfered and manipulated and has changed, mm. right? And has become an industry for better or for worse. A lot of people have been able to build very successful careers and become very happy off of working on, on streetwear and like selling streetwear. But in hardcore, like you still don't see that. And I think there's something about that. It goes beyond the music. It goes beyond the fashion. It goes beyond the scene. Because it goes beyond. There's something to it that I can't put my finger on. And I think that's why it still exists and it's still so true. It's because no one can quite put their finger on what exactly it is about this thing that makes it continue and makes it thrive, you know? So I just wanted to acknowledge that up front, that I was like, it, it gives me a lot of inspiration. Every now and then, I don't go to shows consistently, you know, I'm, I'm dad, you know? Yeah. Every now and then I get a chance to like convince my wife to, let me leave the house for a Saturday night like sit in the back of the venue by myself and like just catch like 30 minutes of the show and I do it specifically with the reason of like I want to remember what this is because so much of my life so much of culture so much of industry capitalism and just how the economy everything works has told me that this doesn't exist anymore but I'm like no it's still here and every day there's another 12 year old kid out there who discovers hardcore oh, yeah, for the first time. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. So I just wanted to express like my appreciation for you guys being in the scene, like keeping it alive. Like that gives me a lot of hope. I mean, I think what you said earlier that hardcore, like it never has gotten by like massive corporation. I think it will always be, I think the pit because hardcore has never had a specific fashion. It's never had I mean, there's been like a trends. There's been like certain, trend, yeah, yeah. There's been sounds that probably like that was massive for the time. But I think hardcore will always be like too much for corporations to take. Like the, the stage dives, you know, like like now I guess rap is popular, but the stage dives, the you know, sometimes like violent, violent hardcore, like when you know the pits or like you know spin kicking, like to some extent, like yeah, punk. I feel like punk is sick. But you can't spin kick. You can't spin kicks uh, like a thirty-five-year-old dude in the face, and that thirty-five-year-old dude kicks <laughs> in the, the face later on. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's like. I think that's the reason. I think it, it's too much for massive corporations to take in. I agree. 
and also for mainstream radio. Yeah. Sound, the, the music it can be off-putting if you're not familiar with the scene and the culture. I'm kind of bouncing around here, but I think that's another remarkable part about hardcore is that if you just listen to the music, you won't understand it, right? You yeah. have to go to a show. Yeah. You have to go to a show. You got to, like, be friends with a band. You got to know how they write the song. You need to know what it's like to, to work on a zine. Right, like you need to screen print your own T-shirts. Like, once you do all of that, and you've actually paid your dues and you've earned your stripes, the music makes a lot more sense, and that starts to become a soundtrack to your entire lifestyle. But if you're just coming into like, oh, I'm just going to adopt the music, and like I'm just going to listen to this right now, would be like Turnstile would probably be like the most easiest entry point for someone to get into hardcore. It's like you're still not going to appreciate the enormity of this thing. Like, it's a whole lifestyle it's a whole perspective it's an attitude right it's like just a point of view that you can't just get from listening to music many other types of music genres you can just listen oh i catch the beat i catch the tempo oh there's a hook that's a bop like i'm in like i like that hardcore you can't really do that with unless you have an appreciation for all of the other aspects and elements of it. And rap, to me, used to be that way. Like, I'm very old now, but when I was growing up, rap was the same. You could bop your head to it, you know, you could kind of listen to the music, but you kind of had to also be immersed in all of the different elements of, like, graffiti and breaking and b-boying and, like, pop locking to turntablism. Like, all of that was a part of what listening to rap music was. And then at some point... You know, the industry came in and divorced the two. And now it's just it's about rap music. And people have largely forgotten that, like, graffiti, you can't listen to rap without, like, understanding graffiti. Mm. Somehow, over the way, over time, we lost the way. But hardcore maintains all those elements. And it's it's true. Like, the, the elusiveness of the genre and of the culture, I think, is probably, like, a huge part of the appeal for young people. Because they're going to be like, my parents will never get this. They'll never think it's good for me. And it's make, it keeps me distinct and apart from everybody else in the scene. Even for us with the hundreds, so going back to your question, you know, how does it even play into like my career and my lifestyle? I grew up in the 90s, hardcore scene, Southern California, uh, straight edge um, until, it's, it, they say straight edge until 21, but it's like really for me, it's straight edge until I had a serious girlfriend and when I was like 25. <laughs> and, um, you know, and my my crew that we're is a crew called PK Positive Kids. We were nonviolent. We were largely a response to like militant straight edge um, that we had been seeing in Southern California at the time. So a lot of the music I was attracted to also vibe along the same path. It's a big fan of like New York hardcore, which is interesting for me growing up in SoCal. I really romanticized that scene. Um, Revelation is uh, it's played a huge part in my life. In my book, I write at length about what Rev did for me. Gorilla Biscuit, Start Today was the first CD I ever bought. Um, and so, like, a lot of my music exploration uh, happened through Rev, which was funny because I bought the CD when I was 11 years old at a bookstore because I thought the name sounded funny. And there was a cool little, like, caveman cartoon figure on the back. And I love drawing cartoons. I didn't know anything about the music and have any friends who were into the genre. I kind of was growing up in the punk scene, like tangential to it, and like punk and ska, and there was like this weird like swing aspect of it as well. But hardcore, I was like, I didn't have a lot of friends in hardcore, but Gorilla Biscuits like opened my eyes to what that music could sound like. And then that just opened up 
like an entire new room for me of music. Um, in the 90s, it was largely the, the scene was largely dominated and driven by what Victory was doing. And Victory, New Age, and, and um, some of the other side labels. And, uh, and so, you know, we befriended the guys at Strife, you know, as Crisis. And um, as the hardcore started becoming a little bit more tinged with metal and became heavier and just like darker, I'd like, I really fell in love with that shit. Mm. So, like, to this day, like, even though I started off like more like New York hardcore minded, like, I'm much more attuned to like just really dark, like, just heavier, blacker metal um, uh, when it comes to hardcore than anything else. Now, when I started the brand, The Hundreds, almost the entire ethos of it was formulated around my uh, upbringing in hardcore, right? And so um, the way that I used to theorize it and present it to people was there is no clothing company that acts like what it feels like to be in a pit at a show, right? Usually when you go to a concert, there it, there's a hierarchy. There's a performer up on stage, and there's everyone down below, and they're looking up to this guy. They're deifying their leader. And the person with the microphone is speaking down to them and telling them how they feel, and everyone is adopting and absorbing how that performer feels, which is great. But to me, it's a very unilateral, one-sided exchange. It's just the musicians saying how they feel, and everyone is going along with that. Hardcore, to me felt like a more equitable, community-minded culture where the singer could get into the pit or the pit could get up on stage, right? And at certain points, if you're a layman watching a hardcore show, you don't know who the singer is. Sometimes you can't even find the band in the crowd because they get washed out into the pit and they're in the back of the room, right? And then the microphone gets passed around and everyone knows the lyrics. And sometimes some singers are better than the actual singer yeah. right and so you don't even know who's singing a song and then you lose the band in the culture in the pit in the community and you're like oh the whole room is the band like we're not here just to idolize one group and one singer we're all the singer we all feel the same way we're all channeling the same energy so that was so beautiful to me when i was growing up watching that i was like this is different man Like, I get to have a say, too. It's not just what he thinks. Like, I have a point of view. I want to say something. Give me the mind. And so when we were building the hundreds, it was the same thing. It was like brands have always performed and been built in a way where you have a clothing designer or the owner or a garmento who owns this corporation. And consumers blindly go out and support this label without any understanding of who that person is, what they believe and what they eat for lunch today, what their social political ideals are. None of that. You're just blindly supporting logos and brands just because they're popular. And at that time, I was even savvy enough to know, yo, some of these brands are owned by whack-ass people. And some of them stand for things that have nothing to do with me. And yet everyone is blindly supporting and saying, oh, this is the cool thing to wear right now. Like, this is the brand. And I'm like, but it's not like who I am. I want to support people that I believe in, even if I don't necessarily attune with them politically on like every single ideal. The fact that they're honest with me like that goes a long way. So I'm like, why can't there be a brand that is transparent? That when you look at it, you're like, I don't even know who the owner is because everyone is a soldier for this thing. And they all believe the same thing. Like, what? where is that hardcore spirited 
brand, right? Can we be the first ones to do something like that? And so that's how we went into the whole thing. I was just like, I'm gonna have a blog and every day I'm gonna go out there and talk to the community and pass the mic around. And I want feedback from them. They're gonna name our mascot that They're gonna tell us we're gonna do the next event. We're gonna keep it open to them because it's not just about my song, it's about them all having a chance to say something in the meantime. So to this day, we're 19 years into the hundreds, um, which is crazy to me. Still very much uh, oriented. 19 years? It's been 19 years. Damn, I'm 19. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> so that's, that's the crazy part. It's like for us to wake up every day knowing that our brand today is being supported and bought by kids who've never known the world without it. For you, your entire life, the hundreds has existed, which is a trip for me <laughs> because crazy. I feel like I just started this shit yesterday. Like, I still feel like we're a startup. Every day, you have to reinvent yourself in this space. And so it's like I have a new brand every day. I feel like I'm as brand new as like the next kid, but I'm not, you know, I'm like a dad now and like selling to 19 year olds. So before we leave the topic of hardcore, I have like one more, more, more so personal question, which is. Please. Which is in Southern California, from my understanding, like black and brown and, you know, minorities didn't start coming around until, until Donnie Brooks, Ababa, like in the early 2000s. So That's your right. time, what it was prior, more, more so only white people, right? Only like white males. Right. Yeah. Was, was, yep. Wasn't that very discouraging? Because sometimes... Like I, I get a lot of where like I'm like yo I'm proud of like you know where I come from because I'm a I'm a I'm a Mexican immigrant right so like I grew up like not only like oh I'm Mexican like I grew up like in like in Mexico some part of my life so it, it, it like I try to explain it to some people who don't who are like oh like you know it shouldn't matter like you know it's hardcore everybody's equal I'm not like when you're so tied into your to you know where you come from and you're actually born and raised and bred you know in South Central like speaking Spanish. Not you know what I mean. Not knowing English very well until like certain age, it kind of does matter. You know what I mean. Like it, it does really like mean a lot to you when you see a band like rotting out. You know what I mean. Like like even a little like like the the first song Mijo no te preocupes just like that part in Spanish. Yeah. You know what I mean. But then like you know what I mean. It does really matter. So I want to ask you how was that like being Asian and you know not feeling maybe re uh, represented or not feeling like a whole connection. Yeah. Yeah. You're very fortunate to be growing up in the scene right now. Yeah. Um, to me, it's like we didn't have a choice. We didn't know any better. And in the set, I grew. I was born in 1980 to date myself. In the 70s, America was still 76, 74 to 76 percent white Protestant Christian. And so it wasn't even so much a fault of their own. It was just the way that the demographics were laid out in this country. And the people in power were only employing people who looked like them and were nepotistically affiliated or related to them. And so the brands and the industries were all white and white male. And then people who were given positions of representation in their cultures and industries, the same, you know, white people were largely friends with white people. And so they, if they own a label, they put on their white friends and it would just continue. And so across media and across the cultural landscape for me growing up as a brown person it was very standard i look around the classroom i'm one of the only few brown people like and there's maybe one black kid in class 
Uh, same when you turn on the TV, same when you would watch a movie. Like, there was nobody that looked like me. For me, being Asian American, like, you were a sushi chef, you were Bruce Lee, or like, you were a nerd. Like, those were the three roles that you would see. And so for me, I was just like, oh, there's no place for me out there in culture. You know, there's no place for me out in media. Hardcore spoke to me because even though it was predominantly composed and comprised of white people, the white people that were involved seeming, for me, at the time, it meant a lot. They had a broader view, right? They were more open-minded to everything. Right. And sometimes people look at hardcore and they're like, oh, they're really rigid in their beliefs, especially when it would get into like hardline straight edge or like certain principles about like animal liberation, like hardcore veganism. It was just like, oh, they're so super rigid in their beliefs. I'm like, hardcore people are the most motivated, most driven, but also some of the most open minded and welcoming people I've ever met. The most inclusive people. Right. They're very willing to sit down and share their education with you, inform you about topics that they're knowledgeable on. Right. But um, I don't find it anywhere else that I go. Even within skateboarding, there was like three kids who looked like me. There was Daewon Song, Gideon Choi, and maybe like Spencer Fujimoto. Right. And so like even in skateboarding, that didn't really exist. But hardcore, even though the room was largely a lot of white dudes, the things that they would talk about were very relevant to my interests. I loved going to Avail shows. Growing up, Avail was one of my favorite bands because they had ARA table at the shows. ARA was a precursor to Antifa, anti-racist action, and, you know, like, there'd be food not bombs tables there. There'd be, like, so much literature that I could read and learn about, like, sitting within the context of those rooms and those venues that I felt seen, even though I wasn't necessarily represented. But to answer your question, it was a trip, man. Like, there was one other kid that, there was two kids. Uh, I grew up in the Inland Empire, so we used to go to shows at the barn, at the showcase, Coos Cafe in Santa Ana. Chain Reaction was kind of starting up as a thing. It's more of a thing. Um, but the kids, you know, there was like three kids. There was kid Kevin, there was Korean like me. There was a guy named Noodles. Like, we all had like fucked up, like weird names, you know, that were Asian related because we were like the Asian kids. And there was like one or two black kids that like, there was this girl, Marika, who was black. Uh, you know, everybody knew and she was like just amazing. But it was a shame. You know, it was a real shame. I tried to get more people who look like me to the scene, but of course their first response was, oh, that's for white kids, you know? Like, same with skateboarding and all the other interests I had. It was just like, oh, that's what white kids do. And I was just like, oh, I thought I just did it because it was fun. <laughs> and they're like, no, it's like, you don't, you shouldn't be doing that. You should be, Asians were like being into Asian gangs and, you know, driving rice rockets. And I was just like, I'm not really down for that. Like, I just want to mosh, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I want to shoot photos of shows of my favorite bands. But um, it's, it is pretty, pretty freaking cool. I know exactly how you feel even when rotting out, even like Spanish speaking hardcore bands, you know? Like, when I was growing up, there was a, it's not a hardcore band, but there's a band called Bruqueria. Oh. It was like, just like the best, the best band, dude. Like, but just, you know, singing in Spanish, even though I'm not Spanish speaking, that's not native to my culture, what it represented to me was I was like, there's other people who are not white who are welcome in the scene and are appreciated and are also leading. And so um, any any bands, you know, that had like black front men or black band members or like brown people in the bands, um, I felt like a kinship with them even if it wasn't that they were Asian it was just like okay you're going against the dominant hegemony of what we're being told is the only way yeah 
Which brings me to my next question of like, you know, like, I feel like it shouldn't matter, but it does, like, to some extent, you know, where you come from, your race, your ethnicity, it plays a big part in, you know, who you are as a person at the end of the day. And you you mentioned how your parents, you know, would tell you, like, oh, there's no money in, like, and what you're doing. So you went to law school, became a lawyer, and which later then you started the brand. I think, you know, every race has its own stereotypes and has its own good sides and bad sides and from 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 where i come from you know i get a lot my mom was always like our, i feel like what mexicans have is that like it's not necessarily make a lot of money it's just keep working if you're getting paid ten dollars an hour like that doesn't matter just keep working and one and one thing you know again being immigrant specifically i would work factories and then i would tell like I will like they would tell me like just work just work like you know like you gotta you gotta man up you gotta da 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 and I'm like why well, I, I see the value in myself and I'm like I can't I can't be working for like like I feel like a slave for like less than a, a dollar less than the minimum so I want to ask you like when you started the hundreds when you like when you when you kind of took that risk and to start something that doesn't guarantee money what in your head necessarily kept you going like what what was like what was like where did the persistence come from yeah um i think it speaks to what you're saying the immigrant work ethic it's really strong and a lot of it comes from fear because my parents when they immigrated to this country they didn't really have a choice they were like hey if i falter or i stumble like we start or like we have to leave this country like there's no one here to support us we don't have a community here and so from the you know as early as i can remember we weren't poor by any means but my parents treated us like we were dirt poor right we had to wear the same shoes for two years at a time and anytime there was holes in the bottom of them like mom like i literally can feel the pavement under my feet she handed me duct tape right now like duct tape up my shoes right we ate fast food like three or four times a week like we were just like living just to survive and that survival mentality has never left even though you know i've been somewhat accomplished you know i've had some measure of success in building my own company over the years i still treat it like every day like this is going to disappear and ben my partner he is uh the son of iranian Im immigrants he feels the same exact way he's like we're grateful every day that we get to do this and we also acknowledge at any time any point that it can all disappear, which, you know, it very well can. And at the beginning of the pandemic, it seemed that way, that everyone was gonna fade out after like two months. It was just like, oh, once they turn off the water, we're done. Um, so I think that has a lot to do with it. But the other thing that's always driven me more than money, because I'm actually not really motivated by money. Um, I've always just wanted to be heard. You know, I didn't feel like I was necessarily being considered in the larger conversations, right? Whether it was just social, racial, just within my community, within my schools, it's kids who look like me, not just race-wise, but I'm into skateboarding. Skateboarding was not a popular thing. It was very much a counterculture in the early 90s. In fact, it was looked at like you were carrying a weapon, right? And so skateboards, growing up in hardcore and like, me trying to share this enthusiasm for this culture and this music with other people and they're just like, bro, like, you know, no, you know, like this, this shit is whack. Like you're not gonna, you know, and so always feeling like I'm marginalized on the fringe. I'm not welcome to the room. I'm like, yeah, no one's listening to me. And so I started the brand really to be heard. And to this day, I thought at some point I'd be exhausted. I'd be like, all right, everyone's heard what I have to say. I'm like, no, that's always in me where I'm like, you need to hear what I have to say. I feel like I have something to say that's important. I want to be additive to the conversation. Don't ignore me, don't shut me out. 
right? And that's something that's so deeply ingrained in, in hardcore. You know, so much of that, the throatiness, the singing, the, the guttural like yelling of what it is. To me, when I see singers doing that, and the band is playing on stage and their fingers are bleeding, they're jumping around. What they're doing is they're telling the larger world, listen to me. I got some something to say. You have to listen to what I have to say. Stop ignoring over and over and over again. Immigrants understand this well. Any kid who grew up on the fringe and wasn't in popular crowd or wasn't into the cool shit or never had the right clothes, they know exactly how I feel, right? And so like that's carried me to this day. That's what the hundreds is built on. I feel like hardcore is built on the same thing. Uh, yeah, that's no, I, I, yeah, that's crazy because I've heard you say that before, but I never. I, I feel like I didn't understand the depth of like what that meant because it makes me really sad a lot of the times. For example, like this specific example, like I have a I have a cousin who we grew up on the same street, and and they it's two cousins. Uh, they both like never like left the hood, and like you know they never like you know never like never bothered to like. You know, I'm like, this is LA, like, there's so much shit, like, there's so much shit, the bus and train takes you everywhere, like, you're fortunate, and I always try to explain that to them, but they never kind of, like, like, they never really understood, it's like their brain can't grasp that idea, and then a, a couple, like, a couple weeks ago, I was with Sponto, and then, I'm not gonna say the name, but this dude was talking about how, in Australia, people, like, wear the LA hat, or, like, they wear, like, you know, like, they want that LA hat so bad, even though they're, like, fucking, all, all, like, far away, I'm, I like I, I thought to, I I thought about my cousins when I heard them. I'm like, damn, like, like if you only knew, like, there's people far away that like glorify like you know South Central and like in the palm trees and you know like all this. And I'm like, if only you knew that mm. outside this bubble, you're like glorified. Like maybe you would I don't know decide to go out. It just kind of makes me sad a lot of the times because like it's like the people who are living here are the people who don't really. Take, take it all in and the people who come here are the people who like understand what LA and the opportunities it gives you yeah yeah I, I gotta give it to you to recognize that and the fact that you appreciate that is is powerful it's true Ricky most people especially in the city they don't necessarily take a lot of it for granted it is a shame I have as you do I'm sure we have a lot of international friends Uh, this week I was uh, I took our Norwegian partner Niklas uh, surfing up at, in Malibu yesterday and you know we had like some fun adventures and I'm taking him through the valley and coming back down I just got him some seafood and he was like I can't believe you guys to do this every day and he wasn't talking about the surfing he wasn't talking about seafood but he was just like LA is the stories here and the characters and there's so many narratives there's so many cultures and there's so many pockets of different neighborhoods right and one like i went to eagle rock i went i had dinner in hollywood and i went to eagle rock it's like i'm on a different planet bro like every different facet of this county and this city it's like different people different attitudes even the languages and like the vernacular most people I really do think most people are pretty comfortable in their lives and you know they want like a nine to five job you know if they want a job they want a routine and they like being they like the expectation they know what's happening next right and then there are people like us like the three of us you know the fact that we are gonna take time out of our day to do a hardcore podcast we're not talking for ourselves we're talking for an audience right 
we're here not only to entertain the audience, but we're here to also educate and also share with them so they don't they don't feel alone. Like the effort it takes in order to do what we're doing right now, like it says something I think greater about the types of people and the types of even the types of music that we listen to. I think a lot of it, a lot of hardcore kids share the same type of mentality where it's not just enough to exist, right? Where I'm, like the world is so much more, we have so much more to offer and life's really not long enough. I could have four or five lifetimes and I still want to get everything done that I want to get done. I still want to meet everyone that I want to meet. Like I'm so grateful that I get to meet you guys, you know? And there are people today who are just sitting on the couch and didn't rise to the occasion, didn't come out to meet you. And I feel like they're missing out for it, but that's what makes them them. That's what makes us us, you know? And I think there's progression because of characters like you guys. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. It means a lot. And um, I, uh, one thing I also want to ask is, I guess, uh, stepping aside from the brand, uh, I mean, from Hardcore, is how do you, uh, and this is one thing I asked to my, my other younger friend, I was, is how do you keep, how do you, how do you keep the rel- uh, relevancy, I guess, of the hundreds? Because I guess most people would say the bomb was your, I was your like your peak. I was your like, I don't know. That was like your, I don't know. I'm trying to think of another example, but that was your moment. How do you, how do you, yeah? How do you keep that going? So the very first time I spoke at UCLA, and I talk about this in my book. If anyone's read my book, um, we spoke to a packed house, and I think we we're about two years into the brand. So to give uh, perspective, like we're 19 years old. So two years into the brand, I get invited to speak at UCLA. Walk in, there's 500 people, wall to wall. There's only standing room. And the first question this kid asks is black kid in the back room stands up and he's just like, you're hot now, but how do, you, how do you expect to stay relevant over time? Because fashion is volatile. There's a lot of ups and downs. Brands come in and out. We see it all the time. It's very trend oriented, trend based. And my, my answer to that question is the same today, which is I really had no intention of ever being relevant or trying to be popular or trying to be the most like commercially successful brand or business like that was never my intention my only driving intention which i referenced earlier was to just relate and connect with a community right the only thing i was here to do was just to be able to converse with other people and have a dialogue just like what we're doing now and to me as long as i did that and i was forthright and i was honest and i was transparent and i was vocal about the things that were weighing on my heart which changes with age and as my life goes on I have different things that weigh on me there's family considerations I care more about let's say the environment than I did 10 years ago right I care more about women's rights and inclusivity in certain ways than I think I did when I was a teenager and so there's different elements of life that continue to stack and build and grow and me as a human I continue to evolve and adapt and so what I told him was as long as I can continue expressing that in a very transparent way, like I don't think that ever gets irrelevant. I don't think people become irrelevant. Good friends especially never go out of fashion. And I've always intended to just feel like a friend. I want the hundreds to feel warm and friendly in your house or in your cupboard or in your closet. And when you put it on, you're like, oh, this is like a reliable, trusty friend. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to be like the hot new shit or like the sexy new girl in, in the school. Like, I'm just out here to like be a friend and be available and be reliable. And so we just always aim to be consistent. You know, I want to do exceptional work. I love the shit that I do. Like, I love my art, 
I'm very much aware that I'm not the best designer. You know, I'm not Virgil. I'm not like Jerry Lorenzo. Like, I understand that. I'm like very self-aware of that. I never intended to be that. I just wanted to be here to contribute to a culture, to bring people together and then connect me with them as well. That's all it was. I don't, I really don't think that ever goes out of fashion. I'll be doing it for the next hundred years and it'll be the same. But it's funny because trends do go in and out and depending on who you talk to and whichever vantage point they're standing at, the hundreds, you know, is the wackest brand in the streetwear space or in fashion or the coolest, right? So five years in, six years, eight years in, and when we're, the bomb was like really popular, you know, there were a lot of people who were like, oh, you guys are one of the top brands in streetwear right now. And it's like, okay, but if you talk to other people in different geography or, you know, different genres, they were like, oh man, this is like super not cool. Like we don't want anything to do with that. And that always changes. And today I get more people telling me like, you guys are hotter than you've ever been today, but it's just because of the circles I'm around, they think so. But if I walked into whatever, like I walked into the brain dead store or the golf store and I asked the kid, I'm like, what do you think of the hundreds? Like, oh yeah, that was cool. Like I was, that was cool when I was like in middle school, right? But every generation said that. So it's hard for me to calibrate like what that means. And to be honest, everyone's just like, there's a lot of people who are like, you guys were hotter back in the day. But if back in, you went back in the day with me, you gotta understand all the comments were like, this brand sucks and is dead. And that was in like 2008 when people said we're hot. So it's like mm. all relative. And it's just all about like, is the business healthy? Yes. You know, do I still have like a great staff who does everything? Do I still get to come here and work every day? It's like, my measure of success is like, am I happy fulfilled doing work we're proud of? Or is our community proud of us? All those things, I'm like, I'm good. You know, like to me, I'm the most popular brand. Yeah, and which brings me to my next question. The big, I feel like the true devil of humanity, which is money. You know what I mean? At the end of the day, money, we need money in order to survive. We need money you know, to live, which it's, you know, how do you keep that? How do you keep, how do you like keep, like with staying true? Like, you know, like you guys did like that OG Mike Giant, uh, the collab, and I was like, yo, like that shit was sick. I was like, that's like, 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 I don't waste a lot of money on stuff, but I was like, man, I would waste, like, those 145 on those pants. And then you did the Tsunami shirt. But then you also have to do, like, stuff that looks more like, you know, you can't be doing graffiti and hardcore collabs all the yeah. time. So how do you, how do you, how do, how do, what is your mindset? What's your mind process of, like, I got to, like, stay true and do these, like, stuff that you probably want to do anyway. And, yeah. like, okay, like, there has to be, like, some, I guess, money coming in. Like, you know, this is, like, the roof, the, the light bill is not going to pay on its own. It is. It is. Um, I'm the first to admit I'm a hardcore capitalist. You know, as much as I like to romanticize the fact that I'm not, yeah. it's like I'm in business and I'm in business to make a profit, to earn a living, to be able to pay the people that work with me every day. So, like, I'm not going to shy away from that. But I think there is, like, a certain social responsibility that comes with approaching business of it is good and fine, in my opinion, to make money. You know, I think it's it's a good thing for people to be able to survive and to put food on the table and also to not have the stress. In my opinion, when people are told it's like a bad thing to only focus on money and like to only be profiteering, a lot of that rhetoric comes down from people in power who want to keep poor people poor, right? And so I remember growing up, the mantra was always like, you know, to be pure is to be poor, to be core is poor. And I was just like, yeah, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. I conditioned myself to think money is like a bad thing. And I still am that way. And like everything that we do, there's a reason why I have a business partner who's more money oriented, who makes sure that the lights stay on. 
but I'm like, let's just kind of like, I'm always more oriented towards like, let's lose money in order to like do more culture oriented things or like, let's do things for just for marketing efforts or because it's cool instead of like just making a, a ton of, you know, making racks off this thing. Um, but I think money is like you're saying, it can be the root of all evil. I think a lot of things can be evil. I think evil people can be evil. But I think money can also be a necessity and be used and put forward towards good causes and good purposes, right? And I believe in a lot of the art that we do. I believe in a lot of the artists that we work with. The hundreds as a platform has always been used as an educational resource. And what we realized over the years is that we were building a brand. And at the time, I thought I was building a brand for myself to get up on and have the microphone and speak. And then coming back to my hardcore roots, what I realized what we were doing was we were building a stage in order to build, bring other people, the lesser voices, the unheard, the people who are marginalized up on stage with us to give them the microphone, right? And so we are very intentional about doing projects with brands that might be underserved, have smaller voices, have quieter, shorter reaches that were like, we have this stage that we built over the last 19 years. Would you like to come up here and share your story with our community? And so because we do that, I feel like it helps me to understand and justify the money-making aspect of a lot of this business. I don't mind making money as long as my community and my people are also benefiting and making money. And not in like a donative, charitable way where, oh, I made money and like, here's a cut. No, more like, I'll bring you up on stage and I will help equip you, help build infrastructure in order for you to be able to make money for yourself. And so the last 19 years, when I talk about the hundreds and people are like, oh, it's a clothing company, it's an NFT project, it's a food festival, it's all these things. I'm like, really what it is, is just an educational resource. I wrote the book in order to teach people how to build their own brands, whether it's a streetwear brand or a clothing company, or whether it's a coffee shop, whether it's a hardcore band, whatever it is that you're trying to start, like read my book and hear all the mistakes I made, don't make them again. And so, yes, I'm all about making money as long as I'm helping other people make money too. And with that being said, um, I think you're never gonna keep people happy. Like that's, you know, like no matter how, like I think I, I go back to like not to diss them, but like that band Capitalist Casualties, where like they just talk about like you know like fuck like like you know like I don't know just kind of like that mindset of like you're gonna you know stay true like stay poor like stay working class. I'm like that's no. one, that's one thing. <laughs> yeah, that's like one thing I've learned. Like it's like like a lot of people ask me like oh like what do you want to do? I'm like I don't know what I want to do yet, but I know that I do not want to be working class anymore. Like I don't want to I don't want to break my back. That's it. Like I'm, I'm, I've, I've done it since I was like 12. I'm like, that's it. But with that being said, it's like, what are some things you would do different necessarily that will like that you've done throughout like the history of the, of mm-hmm. the hundreds that you're like you kind of regret like, man, I maybe should have not done that, or maybe I could have done this different, or maybe I wish that I would have done this earlier or something like that. Yeah. Um. Oh, cool. I was gonna wait for the fire trucks to leave, but they already left. Um, uh, what I would have done differently there's so much right like 
again, going back to my book, everyone's like, oh, you wrote a book about your life and how you built the hundreds. It's a success story. And I'm like, bro, it's like a failure story, honestly. It's just failure after failure after failure after all the screw-ups, after all the bad decisions we made. But all of those bumps in the road were the road. You know that saying? Like, the bumps aren't in the road, they are the road. Like, that's all a part of my journey. I think what makes us human is that we make mistakes and that we learn from those mistakes. And, like, that's the pocket. Those are, like, those are the chapters of life when you make, like, a critical error or you're down bad or you're just having, like, a really tough time in life. And then you make, you learn and you grow and then you reach that next level. I'm like, that's life, right? And we fucked up so much. I fuck up every single day. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing out here. So sometimes Ben and I leave meetings, like million dollar meetings with huge corporate people. And we walk out and we're like, what the hell are we doing here? Like, how did we get here? I don't know what I'm talking about. I never went to business school. I didn't have any mentors in this game. I don't even know how taxes work, right? But every day I make the mistakes and I learn a little bit and I'm like, oh, that was interesting. I just unlocked that. Like, that's a little cheat code that I didn't know before. I'm going to put it in my pocket. I'll tell the community about it later. I'll put it in my next book and then I'll move on. So did, I, did that answer your question? Yeah. 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 I, I think, you know, I make a lot of mistakes. Everything can be construed as a mistake or as a blessed win. It really depends on how you look at it. And I think one of a mistake you can make is, you know, not knowing or not discerning that things can be both, you know? And sometimes we would sell in certain retail stores and I thought it was a win. And in fact, it was a bad thing because it prevented us from getting into other stores. And I was just like, oh, at the time it seemed like it was a good thing. But in hindsight, it was to our detriment, you know? And so, and sometimes we do collaborations where like, this is like a really good one for us. And we're going in with the best intentions, but in the process of it, the relationship goes sour and the project doesn't read well and then nobody buys it. And so like, you never know, like, it's just, you just do the work, you fuck up, you learn, you keep it moving, you know? And like, that's what it is. Um, so I, I don't know, it's hard for me to say what were like, you know, clear mistakes clear misses because almost everything I've ever done was a mistake yet I'm here you know and I'm still doing this so um, I don't know yeah. That's, I don't know how to answer that yeah as we get closer to wrapping this up I guess the, the best way the, like I was thinking I was thinking a lot of way to like what's the last thing what's like the banger question but I think my I'm gonna go with my curiosity and is since streetwear is a fairly new thing and I think about, and again, comparison to hardcore, like all this and reality, it's new. Like, yes, it's been around for 30, 40 years, but it's like, like I think about like Agnostic Front, like those dudes are still alive, you know what I mean? And those dudes kind of like paved the way for hardcore. So, and like streetwear, like you guys were one of the first ones to do it. Once street, once you get older and you probably literally physically can't take care of the hundreds, like what's gonna happen? Like what, like what, what what's gonna happen to the hundreds? Like I think about like uh, Babylon. Like, I don't see anybody else but Lee or, like, but the Trash Talk dudes, you know, using that logo. It's like, do you do you give it away? Do you sell it? What do you, like, you know what I mean? Do you pass it on? Like, what's going to happen? Yeah, to it's such a good question. I love that question. I think um, it's, 
something that most founders and designers and artists and singers and people in bands like they all wrestle with this like what happens like when i get too old and like how does it continue on and i think the ego-minded founder which we all are by the way we're all narcissists and egomaniacs that's why we we're like we're gonna build a brand it's all about us and everyone's gonna support us um but in the beginning we think that it's just everything about like what we have to say and like that's what people come for but when you realize over time that what it is is especially as you build out a staff it's not just about like your story anymore now it's about like everyone else's stories here and as i build out my community like my audience and the customer base it's really their stories as well and so i think the mistake that a lot of ego-minded founders make and I can probably throw someone like Steve Jobs in there, right? Is Steve Jobs built his operation so that without him as the crux, the whole thing would collapse, right? He controlled every decision and his fingerprint was on everything. So the machine actually couldn't progress without his contributions or efforts or involvement. It works beautifully at the time while he's alive. But when he passes and he's not here anymore, the operation stutters and it doesn't feel the same. Apple is obviously still an incredibly successful corporation, but as far as like innovation goes and as far as progress and as far as like design forward thinking, it hasn't been the same since Steve Jobs left. That's my, one of my biggest fears that if I were to die today or if I have a mental break or I just need time away from the company, that everything halts, that it can't perform without me. I think my responsibility as a, a responsible CEO or founder or co-founder or owner of this company is to be able to empower not just my staff to speak on my behalf, but the entire community. Because at the end of the day, it really isn't mine. You know, I think, again, that goes back to the mistake of everyone thinks, oh, the company is, is theirs, it's all about them. It's not. This thing is something that I made. It's like a child. And I'm like, oh, that's me, it's me. It's like, no, it's not. Your child has a mind of its own. It's a product of many different influences and many different factors that have nothing to do with you. Yes, you're responsible for birthing the thing, but that's pretty much about it. Ever since then, it's been a project that you've been tinkering with and working on. And at some point, it belongs to the world. It's not just yours anymore. Whenever people look at their brands and it's like, oh, this is mine, it's just all about me. It's just what I want to make, all vanity projects or bands that are just writing songs only for myself or artists who are like, this painting is just about like what I want and they're not considering the market. I'm like, that's great, that's super pure, but that's not a business. That's a garage art project. That's something you work on in your basement. That's called a hobby. Like we all have those. Like I paint at home, I don't share my paintings with anyone. And like, I do that for me. It's just a cathartic mechanism for me to be able to express my thoughts every day. But I don't go and put it out into the marketplace. But when you build a brand or a business, you're sharing that with the marketplace. You're putting it out there for the community to have input and decide the future of that thing. It's not just up to you. And so that's just, you know, circling back. I think that's the mistake that a lot of entrepreneurs make. They think that they're in control of their entire project. It's all about them. It's like you actually have very little control. Like the success of my brand isn't just contingent upon what I want to do. It actually has to do with market forces, like where like cotton production is in China or India. Like that affects how my brand does in the long run, right? Like something that a fashion designer does out in Paris, that affects how people consider my brand. Like I can't control all those things. And so a responsible brand or business owner or an artist takes their product and puts it out there and says, 
I am driving this thing and I'm directing it, but I actually have nothing to do with it. And the sooner you let it go and let your staff and you let your community and you let your consumers start dictating more and more of what that thing is, it becomes much greater than you. And then I think it really can last forever with or without your involvement. So that's my goal. Like I want to get it to that point. I'm trying to do it through the use of like Web3 and NFTs right now. I think in the future that technology will get further decentralized in a way where we can give broader ownership to the entire community. But I think, you know, it's a very romantic idea, but I think it's actually quite practical. I think we've made a lot of progress just in the last 20 years where brands don't operate as monoliths, as like corporate monoliths anymore, where it's just like, oh, some clothing company called Nike and I buy it. Now it's like the consumers want to be on the same level. They want to know what's going on behind the curtain. They want to know who they're supporting. They want to know what they're wearing on their feet. They're getting more and more of a say as far as what the corporations are doing. And eventually it'll turn. And then the consumers will really have power and ownership over the brands that they support. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. That's some next level. Yeah, that's some next. Yeah, right that's, some, that's like streetwear of the future, bro. Yeah, like it is. Bro. It is. It's like buying buying. A, so, like theoretically, in the future, I guess the idea, the thinking is like you buy a, a hundred shirt, an Obey shirt, a Babylon shirt, and like you own. That's like a, a that's a half percent of the company right there. That's so we're shit. doing that already. That's why we got into. I don't know if you guys know it. I didn't know if you wanted to go there, but about a year ago, we launched a project called Adam Bomb Squad. 25,000 NFTs of different bombs of the hundreds. And the reason why I got into, and everyone gets into NFTs for a bunch of different reasons. There's like a lot of weird scamming, gambling, Ponzi reasons. There's like a lot of like weird horseshit reasons. But we got in because when I started learning about Web3, I was like, oh, for the last 20 years, I've been talking about how my community has ownership over the brand. And it was more in like a metaphorical sense that people felt like, oh, the hundreds, like, that's my shit, man, that's my shit. But I'm like, but is it really yours? And I was, I was writing the white paper, which is essentially like the mission statement for Adam Bomb Squad. And I'm writing this essay and I'm looking down at my feet and I'm wearing Nikes. I'm like, man, half of my life, I've worn swooshes on my feet. I'm an influencer. And not just because I have a lot of social media followers, I'm an influencer to my friends, my family, my relatives, whether it's a good influence or a bad influence. Like I influence them by what I wear every day. They look at me. Right? Like all your friends, they affect each other in their community by what they're wearing, what they're doing. Like you wearing, you know, born and raised. Like I think of, I'm thinking about born and raised right now. You're wearing bad brains. I'm thinking about bad brains right now. Right? So like we all influence the community around us. I wear Nike every single day. I'm advertising for them for free, wearing their swooshes, walking. I'm not on contract with Nike. Yet I'm not getting paid or like realizing the upside in the benefit of me going out there and proselytizing the message of Nike to my community every single day. I should have some kind of reward in that or I should see some kind of uh, uh, upside in me influencing for the brand. And so when Web3 and NFTs came around, I'm like, this is the first time that people can actually have a bomb of ours. And as the bomb gets more popular and more notable, the price of their bomb in theory should get more. Right, and then they can actually benefit as the brand does better. They're a part of that, so now we're all winning. And so that just goes back to my point of, I like making money. I don't mind making money as long as I can bring my community with me, and then they can start making money as well. They're not just blindly supporting a corporation wearing a bomb because they're like, oh, it's a cool thing, and I feel cool. You know, 
while Nike was doing, while I was supporting Nike, Nike continued to just make more billions and billions of dollars. I don't think people realize how large these clothing corporations are. They're the biggest in the world, right? And meanwhile, why? Because half or 60 or 70% of Americans are out there wearing Nike and swooshes as a free billboard thinking that social clout is enough. Oh yeah, like I get clout out of this. You should get paid too. You really should get paid as well. And it's not that it's just about money. It's really not just about money, but it's about understanding that people should have their fair share in order to live well. And so that they aren't grinding and breaking their back every day while billionaires are like living lavishly in, in mansions while you're doing all the work for them. Like that's, and that, that, there's no equity there for me. Um, so it is the future. I think it's happening now. I think it'll make more sense. Right now, NFTs are in a weird, it's a really awkward, like adolescent state of just cartoon JPEGs and it doesn't make a lot of sense. But in, I think it's leading to a place where I think corporations and the relationship between fashion and consumers is going to be disrupted in a way where everyone's going to be part of the same thing. Yeah, the biggest, I heard that somewhere, the biggest, there's money, there's all these billion ways to market your shit. At the end of the day, the biggest marketing is word of mouth. Yeah, yeah, it is. All it right. Is. Um, yeah, but thank you for, uh, thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you, everyone. Yeah, it means a lot. Thank you, yeah. everybody, for listening. This was Bobby Hundreds. Later.